Hi, I'm Devlin Camp. Thanks for joining me. Over on QueerSerial.com or on my Instagram at QueerSerial, you can explore the complete Queer Serial episode guide. You can also buy Queer History merch, explore my archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary currently in production, and subscribe to listen to bonus episodes. If you subscribe to any of my bonus content through Spotify, Patreon, or Apple Podcasts, your subscription supports all of my ongoing LGBTQ history projects. Thank you so much. There are links to everything here in the episode notes or at QueerSerial.com. This is Season 5 of Queer Serial, a standalone miniseries. Heads up, this season features sensitive sexual content. These episodes detail the true story of a panic that swept Boise, Idaho in 1955. A panic that continues to spread and damage our communities today. This is a WTVJ Live Eye Special Election Report. Here is Ralph Rennick at Dade County Election Headquarters. A battle pitting singer Anita Bryant against gay rights activists comes to a vote there Tuesday. The issue is whether or not to repeal a four-month-old ordinance which prohibits job and housing discrimination against homosexuals. Uh, as a mother, Joan, uh, in protection of my four children, I felt very strongly uh, because uh, I'm a Christian and uh, we try and live by the Holy Scriptures and uh, uh, we knew how strongly that God dealt with homosexuality and so uh, because they would become role models to uh, my four children. The election may well be decided by people like Rick Ely, a bisexual who has kept his sexual preference a secret from his family. He is 27 and has never voted before. Gay activists are hoping there are many like Ely who have registered their sexual preferences in the voting booth to defeat Anita Bryant's campaign. It was a decisive end to Dade County's homosexual controversy. 200,000 Miamians told their elected officials they wanted no part of a law which protects homosexuals in jobs and housing. It also surprised many people that 90,000 voters wanted to keep the gay rights law on the books. That was an impressive showing for gay activists. They celebrated last night with a spirit usually reserved for winners because they believe they won recognition. One gay activist said it would not stop here. So everybody is going to be working together now in one very massive effort to do two things. First of all, guarantee human rights for everybody based on affectional and sexual preference everywhere in the nation, all through Congress. It's all happening all over the world. And Anita, we really thank you. We couldn't have done it without you. Anita Bryant's leadership to defeat the law generated the national attention. The overwhelming defeat yesterday of the homosexual rights ordinance in Dade County, Florida, seems to have made the issue and the fight even more national in scope than before. Gays vowing not to give up staged nighttime demonstrations in New York's Greenwich Village and the streets of San Francisco. Then spontaneous singing broke out among the gays as they made it clear that they have found a new unity that they apparently plan to keep. Mike Siemens, Channel 4 News. On November 16th, the Florida Citrus Commission will decide whether to keep Ms. Bryant as its $100,000 a year spokesperson. Her husband says if she loses that job, it will signal the end of her career. Anita Bryant's role as a leader in the campaign against homosexuals may be hurting her campaign to sell orange juice. The chairman of the Florida Citrus Commission says if her anti-gay activities hurt orange juice sales, she'll be dropped from the organization's commercials. Yesterday, the commission's publicity director said he wished Miss Bryant would resign her orange juice role because of her role in the homosexual issue. The attorneys handling the case are confident that the depositions taken today will clear the way for Anita Bryant's appearance in court. They say that witnesses have told police that the accused murderers in stabbing Hillsborough more than 15 times said, here's one for Anita. She has said no matter what it costs her personally, she's going nationwide with her anti-gay rights campaign. It has been an economical sacrifice, but I was willing to do that for, for my convictions. The 37-year-old Bible-quoting Baptist and mother of four children said, it's God's battle. There was talk of going national. 
In Washington, the Senate and House voted to prohibit homosexuals from using federal public housing funds. Then events for the singing promoter of orange juice began to turn sour. Homosexuals started fighting back. The gays formed new groups and picketed the performer's public appearances, forcing her to cancel a few. Anita Bryant is now being sued for $5 million by a San Francisco mother who charges that the singer's activities contributed to the recent murder of her homosexual son. And a federal judge has ordered Ms. Bryant and her group to stop using the name Save Our Children because a nonprofit group with a similar name complains of losing contributions. So they said they would not appear on these shows if I were to even make a personal appearance talking about my book. They don't want the, my side of the story to come out because it's the truth. Are you being blackballed? Well, it's, uh, it's, it looks that way. It's, it's worse than that. We're being threatened, and uh, there's all kinds of harassment, even with my job with Florida Citrus. So Anita Bryant will return to her career. She will offer advice to those who seek it, but she has decided not to lead her so-called foot soldiers of God on a national crusade. I have been blacklisted for exercising the right of a mother to defend her children and all children against their being recruited by homosexuals. Because I dared to speak out for straight and normal America, because I dared to challenge the immoral influences of homosexual recruiters and their protectors on the Metro Commission, I have had my career threatened. She was devastated by personal problems. Her 20-year marriage was ending in divorce. So that just compounded my own condemnation, and, and I went into hiding. I didn't want to see the public. I never wanted to sing again, certainly never face the press. She'd been dropped as spokesperson by the Orange Growers. She'd been dropped as a commentator on the Orange Bowl Parade. She lost a television show contract. Her bookings dropped drastically. Her entire life had become a series of catastrophes. And, um, and the rest is history. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is Gay Panic, Episode 9, the finale. Pettiness, intolerance, and the personal ambition of a few. Washington Newsletter, The Mattachine Society, Incorporated, Washington Chapter, P.O. Box 8815, Washington, D.C., Newsletter Volume 2, Number 1, January 1957, The Idaho Trials. On the last page of this newsletter is given the results of the trials of the 16 defendants of Boise and the neighboring towns who were arrested and charged with infamous crimes against nature, beginning in October 1955. All sentences are indeterminate sentences under the Idaho Indeterminate Sentence Law. That is, the prisoners may or may not be released before the number of years stated, depending on the decision of the State Board of Correction. Those placed on probation will be closely supervised, and if they engage in homosexual acts or fail to comply with the strict terms of their probation, they will be immediately returned to court and sentenced. Some of our readers will recognize one of the defendants as a former Washington resident. The Washington Mattachine Newsletter continues. Sodomy in Idaho draws a minimum sentence of five years and includes acts both oral and anal. In addition, there is a lewd conduct with minor or child under 16 law, which provides for a maximum sentence of life imprisonment. Contrary to the article in the Time magazine on December 12, 1955, not all of the defendants had engaged in acts with minors. The prosecuting attorney in all these trials except for the last part of the Larson trial, when Eugene Thomas was the state's attorney, was Blaine F. Evans, 33, who quit in this capacity after his election in November 1956 on the Republican ticket to the state Senate. The Idaho Daily Statesman newspaper on January 11th described Evans as being now, quote, interested in modernization of the state's criminal code. The Mattachino goes on, the trials have received wide publicity in the Boise papers from the beginning and resulted in a wave of hysteria in Idaho, which seems to have swept over into nearby states, especially Utah and Montana. During this period of more than 27 months, there was a mass meet on morals, episode 4. The Boise police chief was fired, a governor's conference on young people's development was had, the Boise mayor and the city council set up a special juvenile and morals department, the Boise Ministerial Association passed a resolution praising local law enforcement officers for their valiant efforts against homosexuals, 
a YMCA youth legislature passed a bill recommending sex education in Idaho schools. A state mental health director was appointed. Creation by the state of a central crime laboratory and identification bureau was recommended. Boise's curfew laws for children and minors under 16 were tightened. And there were recommendations for a strengthened juvenile code and a parental responsibility law. Continuances were granted in a number of the trials so that several months elapsed before their conclusion. Martin, the only defendant who was acquitted, was represented by Raymond L. Givens, former Chief Justice of the Idaho Supreme Court, and his partner, Raymond D. Givens. An all-male jury listened to testimony from 14 character witnesses, clergymen, businessmen, fellow lawyers, etc., who testified in Martin's behalf. Martin himself did not take the stand. The defendant, Moore, had several character witnesses, but not as many as Martin. Charles Pruitt testified that he had his first homosexual experience at the age of seven. Judge Kolsch told Alma Farnsworth that he would have been better off had he committed theft, and he told Thomas Dillon that he had committed a quote-unquote nasty crime. Of course, to some people, all sex is nasty, lewd, and indecent. Many, many of the so-called crimes against nature have been committed, but only a very few have gone to trial or ever been exposed. The monasteries of the Middle Ages were no exception. While the Idaho unfortunates are behind bars or serving long probation terms or reclining on the psychiatric couch, it behooves the rest of us, including lawmakers and judges, to look to Sweden, Italy, Mexico, Denmark, and other countries where homosexual acts are not a crime. Charles Pruitt, 24, hospital attendant, guilty, five years, state pen. Thomas S. Dillon, 34, janitor, guilty, three years, probation. Joe Moore, 54, bank vice president, guilty, seven years, state pen. Paris T. Martin, 44, attorney, not guilty, acquitted. John C. Bartlett, 28, high school teacher, guilty, six years probation. Vernon H. Castle, 51, clothing store clerk, guilty, 10 years state pen. Melvin Durr, 29, insurance salesman and theatrical worker, not guilty, later changed to guilty, six months county jail, to be followed by court-ordered psychiatric treatment, and five years probation. Charles Brokaw, 29, Freightline dock worker, guilty, five years, state pen, commuted to six months county jail. Joseph Goff, 33, store buyer, not guilty, later changed to guilty, five years probation. Willard W. Wilson, 39, liquor salesman, guilty, five years, state pen. Alma Farnsworth, 31, salesman, no plea, five and a half years, probation. Charles Gordon, 40, interior decorator, guilty, 15 years, state pen. Ralph Cooper, 33, shoe store employee, no plea, life imprisonment, state pen. James W. Sales, 33, pianist, not guilty, later changed to guilty, five years probation, and to take psychiatric treatment under direction of State Board of Correction. And the final person accused on trial in last week's episode, Gordon Larson, 31, salesman, declined to enter plea. Judge entered plea of not guilty. Gordon Larson has been found guilty and sentenced to five years in the state pen. In the previous episode, I presented partial scenes from the trial of Gordon Larson, the last victim of the Boise Gay Panic, to take the stand, after an accusation by an adult man named Eldon Halverson. After all the hysteria and wildly inconsistent sentences handed down to men who mostly committed no sexual acts with minors, only consenting adult men, The big question of that final trial came down to determining what the so-called infamous crime even was. Sodomy? A blowjob? A kiss? A meaningful caress? A glance at a bus stop? What was Gordon guilty of, and what does he deserve for it? 
The reporter John Garrisey will note that it was a devastating cross-examination, his words. The jury simply didn't believe Gordon Larson. They could either believe him or they could believe Officer Quentin, Officer Brandon, Deputy Prosecutor Thomas, and Prosecutor Evans, all of whom were there the night Larson was taken in. They were assisting and funding the queer questioner, Bill Fairchild, in that secret interrogation house on 16th Street. Allowing Fairchild, homosexual interrogator for the military, the official capacity to question these suspects however he likes. The odds were stacked against Gordon Larson from the beginning. The prosecutor, Blaine Evans, had also convinced the jury that there was likely penetration of some kind, even without even proving that there was an orgasm, because just oral penetration is enough, according to Idaho state law, to consider their interaction an infamous crime against nature. Gordon Larson's attorney called character witnesses, his family members, to testify on his behalf, and the officers were put back in the stand again, but none of it was enough to sway the jury. They found Gordon Larson guilty. Alice Larson, Gordon's mother, said, Misconduct has not been and never will be acknowledged, for my son is not guilty. Vernon Smith, Larson's attorney, had himself sworn in, and he testified that the prosecution offered him deals multiple times if Larson pleaded guilty. Smith introduced five other cases under the same judge, Judge Kolsch, in which the homosexuals were given probation. Larson wasn't even accused of molesting a minor, and some of those men who were got probation. Vernon Smith files motions for a new trial on several grounds. On the grounds that Blaine Evans implied Larson was guilty based on his own interrogation of him, on the grounds that Blaine and Thomas implied that they had some conclusive evidence that Larson is a homosexual, on the grounds that Evans admitted in his summation that he was using Halverson to stop a quote-unquote homosexual ring that will run the town if Larson isn't convicted, on the grounds that Evans repeatedly referred to Halverson as this boy under 21 in order to make it sound as though Larson molested an underage person, on the grounds that the court allowed Halverson to say he knew of Larson as a homosexual when in fact he'd never met the man, on the grounds that Dr. Butler interviewed Halverson a year ago and found him to be, in his words, a far-developed sexual psychopath capable of lying easily on the grounds that Agent Fairchild was alone with Gordon Larson when he obtained the confession, and on the grounds that Larson is willing to take a lie detector test or sodium amytol to prove his honesty. And of course he filed for a new trial on the grounds that the press coverage of this panic has prejudiced the jury, that the case has been mishandled overall, and that the court did not allow the defense to see Larson's confession or hear Agent Fairchild's tapes. Judge Kolsch does not agree. A new trial is not set. Kolsch sentences Gordon Larson to five years in the penitentiary. Larson's attorney, Vernon Smith, continues to fight. Several appeals, all lost. The Supreme Court refuses to hear the case. Larson joins Pruitt, Castle, Moore, Wilson, Cooper, Schaefer, Gordon, Durr, and the others in the pen, in the gay solitary cells. Some of them make overalls. Some of them don't see the yard outside for several years. In the year following the final trial, John Garrisey becomes editor of Time magazine. He immediately goes to the magazine's morgue to look up the Boise file. He still has many lingering questions from the first Time article in 1955. When he travels to Boise in the early 1960s for answers to his many questions about the brief but vicious gay sex panic, he visits the penitentiary. Garrisey wants to see the bleak conditions convicted homosexuals live in. Guards say the hole, solitary, is full of people too dangerous for him to visit. But an editor from the Idaho Observer tells Garrisey the truth is that conditions are too disgusting for a journalist to see. 
Garrisey also finds there's clearly no attempt to bring rehabilitation programs or mental health services to the prison, despite what Warden Clapp says publicly. When Garrisey mentions the psychiatric reports on the prison's inmates and on the former convicts released, Warden Clapp scoffs at him. He says, I know a hell of a lot more than any head shrinker what to do with the cons. When Garrisey's research is all over in 1965, he writes, In my mind, this was an outrageous miscarriage of justice. It put the lie to all those sanctimonious officials I talked to, from Evans down, who claimed that they only wanted to stop child molesters. Over the next decade, into the 60s, sentences of homosexuals lax a bit. Most people are paroled. Garrisey asks what their goal is with homosexuals. One officer says not to prosecute, but to prevent. They aim to identify homosexuals before they act. Cops watch and or arrest them before they engage in sex. Garrisey asks, how do you plan to arrest them before they act? The officer says spy holes in public toilets, stakeouts, patrols, etc. The officer says, We also keep a very complete file with photographs and characteristics of known perverts, but it's a constant fight and we cannot let up, even if the courts are lenient. Yeah, after the panic, the courts are considered lenient by paroling gays who are caught. The officer says the scandal boomeranged. Too many people were hurt, he said. The city's reputation was too drastically damaged. Opinion becomes divided. Boiseans think the investigator either went too far or not far enough. A new mayor is elected. City council goes totally silent on the issue. Garrisey struggles to find people who will even talk about it. Many Boiseans involved in the scandal have left town. Many remaining are embarrassed by their own behavior. Others are worried that talking about the gay panic will start it up again. They all want to bury it. Dr. Wardell Palmeroy, co-author of the Kinsey Reports, which we talked about way back in season one, he says it's pretty common that a witch hunt situation results in a hard swing toward laxity. Pomeroy says this is because a real crackdown often uncovers too many prominent men. In another interview, one of the ex-con homosexuals tells Garrisey, The real big shots I knew as homosexuals were never arrested, and they knew who that millionaire queen was. They knew all about him before they picked me up, because they asked me about him. And I'll tell you, I confirmed it. The Queen was never caught. He was known to certain people, even Agent Fairchild and the reporter Garrisey, but he was too powerful to be named. The aristocratic Mormons of Boise at the Arid Club were unsuccessful in taking him down, but they were somewhat successful in other ventures against homosexuals. As mental health professionals continued to push for federal help in Idaho, which was often approved, Mormon conservatives kept pushing back on it. They described mental health services as a communist plot, and the Mormon groups sent out pamphlets denouncing mental health legislation. One pamphlet, for instance, from the Network of Patriotic Letter Writers, titled Evils of Mental Health Program, says in part, President Kennedy's multi-million dollar network of clinics to be set up in every city and town under bills currently in Congress will be authorized under the vague definition of mental health to scrutinize and correct your thoughts and beliefs with or without your consent. These clinics, subsidized and controlled with federal money, will be staffed with government employees with the mission of preventing you from having mentally ill thoughts. I think you must admit that even Hitler never had it so good. You ought to be inspired to think that it is only going to cost you a few hundred million more per year. Many homosexuals, gay men, and lesbians who were committed to mental health facilities at this time were exposing themselves to the possibility of electroshock therapy, 
injection of nausea-inducing chemicals, hypnosis, hormone therapy, various brutal conversion therapies. Many hospitals thought these would be effective treatments. Many homosexuals thought it was what was good for them and preferred treatment to prison, but they weren't given a choice either way. Doctors like Butler believed in much more humane treatments for those people who wanted it or were sentenced to it. But all facilities put in place to help homosexuals, whether or not they were practicing harmful treatments, were under the watchful eyes of the conservative Mormon groups. Their efforts to sow persistent public antipathy against any form of mental health care were very effective, thus perpetuating the social problems they complained about from the very beginning. After years of tireless effort, Dr. Cornell was finally able to create a state division of mental health with three clinics. He had the support of a dedicated social worker named Irene Wilcox, who pushed for the Children's Code Commission to be enacted, and a new bill for comprehensive child health care in 1961. The state approved the bill partly due to the scandal in 1955 Boise. Through this program, the state found a lot of things going wrong in Idaho that Idaho's kids were statistically much more delinquent than kids in other states, and the law enforcement practices dealing with them were, as Garrisey wrote, absurd. The state had 347 children with mental disabilities that the Board of Education didn't even bother to enroll. In the late 50s, delinquency referrals to probate courts rose to 59%. Most of the probate judges hadn't graduated law school, More kids were jailed than placed in foster care and left without supervision in cells with other kids, easily able to harm themselves or others, and nothing to read in those cells but the Bible. Many of these kids were jailed for so-called crimes that adults wouldn't even be jailed for. The commission created a plan to change judicial structure, raise minimum requirements, improve pay, and establish centers for mental health. The plan would cost about $471,000, which, as Garrisey writes, is about the same cost as keeping 45 kids with mental disabilities in the state pen for a year, or 11 kids in the state hospital south at Blackfoot for a year. But rather than try the commission's very inexpensive solution, the Mormon groups kept lobbying against the Children's Code Commission as a communist plot. So very few of the recommendations were enacted by the mid-60s when Garrisey showed up. Dr. Butler, the psychiatrist brought in during the panic, to reason with the citizens, became so disliked in Boise that he left town for Portland. And now, a word from our sponsor. You can listen to the first four seasons of Queer Serial free wherever you're listening to this episode right now. Hear the story of American queer liberation from its roots in the 1920s all the way through to Stonewall and beyond. If you'd like to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects, like the Randy Wicker and Marsha P. Johnson archives and my documentary currently in production, you can subscribe to bonus episodes of Queer Serial. It's $2.99 a month to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Or if you subscribe for $3 a month, one cent more on Spotify or Patreon, you can also see my Queer History archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary. That gets you everything I've ever posted on Patreon since the podcast started in 2017 and all of my bonus episodes, the Queer Serial spinoff stories, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riot interviews, Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. And you can go ahead and see everything on that list in the episode guide at QueerSerial.com episodes. If you'd like to support my queer history work and get some gay merch for it, visit my new Etsy shop. I've got lots of podcast merch from throughout the series, lots of unique queer history related items that make cute gifts, like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar featured in season two, some lovely mugs with rainbow maps that say queer history is world history, I have Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always from a note she wrote to Randy that's in her archive that I've been processing at the LGBT Center here in New York. My Etsy also has other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested and also stickers that you can put in textbooks that lack queer history 
to warn future readers of that book. Lots of stickers and buttons and fun stuff like that. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There are links to all of this and the bonus episodes and everything in the episode notes here and on my Instagram at queer serial and at queerserial.com. Thank you all so much for your support. You've enabled me to do so much over the past six years. I'm so grateful. Okay, that's it. That's my ad. Enjoy act two of this episode. In 1992, she said, people hated me because I spoke the truth. I'm Sarah, Sarah Green. Anita Bryant's my grandma, my dad's mom. She's a big happy birthday phone call type because she likes to very dramatically sing it. We were talking and she was talking about how like, if I had faith, the right man would come along. And she just would not stop talking about the right man coming along. And I just snapped and was like, I hope that he doesn't come along because I'm gay and I don't want a man to come along. And what she said was, oh, like, I know that you think that this is who you are, but it isn't because uh, homosexuality isn't real. It doesn't exist. And it's a delusion invented by the evil one is what she said, uh, the devil to lead people astray from God and that if I were to truly like focus my life on God and faith that I would kind of come back to myself and come to the realization that I'm actually straight. It's very hard to argue with someone who thinks that like an integral part of your identity is just uh, an evil delusion. She wants a relationship with a person who doesn't exist because I'm not the person she wants me to be and I'm not going to have a relationship with somebody who can only have one like on their terms. My partner and I have talked a lot about whether we want to invite her to our wedding. I think I probably will eventually just call her and ask if she even wants an invitation because I genuinely do not know how she would respond. I don't know if she would be offended if I didn't invite her. I, I really genuinely don't know if she will come or not. I guess I'll just say that I don't hate my grandma. I just kind of feel bad for her. And I think as much as she hopes that I will figure things out and come back to God, I kind of hope that she'll figure things out. In 1966, John Garrisey's research is published, despite the Idaho governor attempting to block it. Garrisey's book is titled The Boys of Boise, Fuhrer, Vice, and Folly in an American City. He writes in the introduction, I stuck it out until I had documented the whole affair. When I did, I realized that the Time article had been misleading in many ways. I also concluded that the whole scandal was one of the most shocking examples of legalized prejudice involving politics and personal vendettas that I had ever come across. Homes were shattered, families were broken, and individual careers were ruined, sometimes with incredible viciousness. And the fabric of a whole town was laid bare, revealing to what extent it rested on pettiness, intolerance, and the personal ambition of a few. I also understood, perhaps for the first time, what life in a small town is really like. And since America is ultimately made up of such small towns, I understood what America is really like, because Boise is one of those typical American communities that has a single daily newspaper. I realized that the freedom of the press we cherish so much can be just as much of a farce in America as it is in countries where the press is controlled by the government. For what is the difference between a newspaper that prints only what the government tells it to, and a newspaper that prints only what an all-powerful editor catering to the establishment of the community, decides is news or facts. Garrisey's book is one of the first widely read American publications recommending the decriminalization of homosexuality. After the book is published in 1965, he receives a letter from the last remaining incarcerated homosexual from the Boise Panic, who just got out of jail 
and he credits Garrisi's book for his release. In the preface to the 2001 paperback edition of The Boys of Boise, John Garrisi writes, I didn't get rich, but that letter sure made the whole book very worthwhile. When it comes out, the book is controversial, of course, but it's a national hit and selling fast in all the airports. The Idaho Statesman, of course, pans the book. Eventually, a later editor of the paper, John Cortlett, will admit the Statesman fanned the flames of the gay panic. As the book rolls out in the mid-60s, most Idaho politicians pretend they haven't read it in order to avoid questions. June Schmidt at the Les Bois, she's shocked to learn that the story is so much bigger than she knew at the time. Also, most people in town hadn't heard, until the book, that Cadet Frank Jones was forced out of West Point Military Academy for his homosexual experience with the theater performer, Melvin Durr. Frank's father, Councilman Buck Jones, is publicly humiliated for his part in inadvertently destroying his son's career. Deputy Prosecutor Gene Thomas says of Garrisey's book, he turns it into a scary story for him, nonsense. And he then suggested there was this witch hunt. It was not a witch hunt, it was the opposite. I'm sorry, but the facts ruin his story. His story is not as good as the facts. That chapter in Boise's history is a proud chapter, no matter what the homosexual community has to say. Dr. Butler, a fourth-generation Mormon and grandson of LDS pioneers, is excommunicated from the Mormon church for his quotes in Garrisey's book, Defending Homosexuality. The doctor later comments on Garrisey's book, saying, he saw what he saw in Boise, and I think he did a good job of writing about that. The downtown bookstore, where Mrs. Jones worked, refuses to display the book, but they keep a stock under the counter and continue to order more from the publisher, as everyone in town is secretly asking for it. It's a huge seller, especially after the 1967 CBS segment airs. And scores of lives were ruined. Wayne Kidwell was 15 years old, junior at Boise High School when all this took place. Now he is county prosecuting attorney. He represents a new generation with different ideas. There's homosexual activity in Boise and uh, probably every city in the United States there's homosexual activity and certainly some prosecution. When you talk about prosecuting homosexuality, of course, you have to break this down into categories so that you know what you're talking about. The prosecution uh, of a homosexual that's involved with a young child, I think, is something that uh, should exist. Uh, when you're talking about prosecution between consenting adults, I think that we have to take another look at it. Well, when you say another look, what do you mean? Well, I mean, I think that the, the laws right now as they're written are designed towards sex itself. And I think that this is somewhat undesirable to make sex per se illegal or to put connotations on it that would be undesirable. As for myself, I think it's a healthy thing if we can talk about something like this. Why? I think it can be beneficial not only to Boise, but to anybody else that's concerned about this, that we know as much about it as possible and that we put it in the proper perspective and not make it something that we uh, talk about in back rooms or that young people have to be afraid when they mention the word homosexual. People of Boise gather in small groups in their living rooms to watch the new CBS special, hosted by Mike Wallace, called The Homosexuals. There's a link in the episode notes if you'd like to revisit the special, and I also covered it in detail in Season 3, Episode 7 of Queer Serial. Boiseans are particularly interested to see the five minutes of this documentary specifically about their town, a segment for which most people in town refused to be interviewed. CBS asked to interview a judge, Prosecutor Blaine Evans, former Chief Brandon, the Statesman editor, everyone said no. The producer of the documentary, Harry Morgan, says the case illustrates the fact that homosexuality cannot be stamped out, that it is everywhere, not just in the big cities. Society must be made aware of the realities of homosexuality in order to evolve more educated means for dealing with the problem. The efforts to tell this story proved to be of help in the coming decade. In the 1970s, seven Boise policewomen are discharged for being lesbians after their phone is tapped, 
And the judge in their case announces that this lack of due process is, quote, an abysmal operation, and that he's surprised Boise can still lower itself to such nonsense in the 1970s. The policewomen sue the city for $16.5 million. The apparent final victim of the 1950s Boise gay panic is not one of the arrested homosexuals. It's the councilman's son, the former cadet Frank Jones, who was taken down in his own father's hunt for homosexuals. In 1955, on the 40th anniversary of the gay panic, the statesman runs a piece titled The Boy Most Likely. It begins, Scandal cost Frank Jones a West Point degree. His story is a cautionary tale for the gay rights debate. He appeared to be everything that America treasured in the straight-laced 50s, a clean-cut boy, smart, devoted to family, God, and country. But one rainy night, nearly 30 years later, everything came crashing down. At the reception desk of a no-frills Boise motel, he handed over $33 in cash, then staggered through the lobby to room 119 and into oblivion. Reeling with an overdose of pills and booze, the now suicidal man stood at the foot of his bed in that velvet black room, then pitched over backward and died. 44-year-old Frank Jones's life is laid out in The Statesman for Boiseans to see the lasting results of the panic still lingering in the mid-90s. Jones suffered through depression and a difficult divorce before committing suicide. The paper will also report on his father, Councilman Buck Jones's death of heart failure eight years later on the anniversary of his son's death. In the learning process, everybody suffered. The town is again furious that someone would bring this whole thing up again. They write angry letters to the statesman saying things like, Pray tell, what redeeming social value did we learn from reading on the boys of Boise? And why in the world would the statesman be dredging this up again? Smut, smut, smut. And also, leave our skeletons in the closet. Did you think we didn't know they were there? More people are eventually interviewed. Citizens are interviewed in the documentary covering the Boise gay panic. It's called The Fall of 55. Local Boisean Brian Johnson explains, I don't think the Boise community and probably the authorities who had to deal with it had enough background to deal with it. In other words, this is what we're left with when we spend all our resources on the police force. Social problems require smarter solutions than just rules and their enforcement. In 2003, a Supreme Court overturned sodomy laws for 13 states, including Idaho. Shortly after, in 2007, staunch opponent of gay rights, Idaho Republican Senator Larry Craig, was arrested for indecent behavior in a men's restroom. He did not run for re-election. As for the Idaho men who spent time in the pen after the panic, two of them seemed to have drank themselves to death before the age of 40. Ralph Cooper, who was sentenced to life, served nine years in the pen and later went to jail on new charges. He never received any psychiatric care, as promised. The clothing salesman moved after prison and changed his name and came out and lived a happy, open life. The banker Joe Moore served one and a half years of his seven-year sentence and returned to his wife. Mel Durr served a year and a half, too and was later interviewed by legendary gay historian Jonathan Ned Katz. You can hear those tapes of Mel Durr in the documentary, The Fall of 55. Durr died in LA in 2000. Eldon Halverson died of AIDS in 1993. Al Travelstead, former owner of the Howdy Partner Diner who ran to Mexico, he, his wife, and kids returned to the US after a long year trying to adjust to a new life in Tijuana. Al struggled to get a business off the ground there, but back in the U.S., he found a little luck. Al saw a long line coming out of the very first Sizzler, and he went inside, found the owner, and talked him into selling the first Sizzler franchise. The Travelsteads were never as wealthy as they once were in Boise, running the dance studio and the Howdy Partner Diner, but they did start their lives again. His son, Alti, is interviewed in the documentary, detailing the lasting pain the Travelsteads carried from 1955 forward. 
As for the others involved, Judge Merlin Young said he could never send a homosexual to jail again after what he learned in the 50s. Prison Warden Clapp resigned after 21 years running the penitentiary to become Idaho Secretary of State. Deputy Prosecutor Gene Thomas became president of the American Bar Association, and by the time the documentary was made in 2006, Gene Thomas still had an office in the tallest building in Idaho. And Prosecutor Blaine Evans also sat high in an office building, looking out over Boise after the panic calmed down. He had a great view from the Bank of Idaho building, overlooking the Capitol's entrance, bragging in 1965 to the reporter John Garrisey, I can see everyone who's going in and out. I can tell when the governor's in and when he's out. Isn't that better than being inside? Garrisey points out, you're also towering above him. The reporter notes Blaine Evans smiling. John Garrisey concludes his book, The Boys of Boise, with the following paragraph. None of the Boise homosexuals sent to prison from 1955 to 1957 used force. Some were and are unchangeable and violated the law only with other consenting adults hurting no one. Others did molest children. They were sick and should have been treated. The kids, too, should have been treated. They were not. Not one. Why? In the early 2000s, Dr. Jeanette Ross interviews Idaho citizens for her own new study while she helps young people get their GEDs and find jobs. Many of the young guys in her study explain that sometimes they can get a little cash at the Idaho Falls bookstore. They tell Dr. Ross it only takes 10 minutes and bam, 60 bucks. Most of these young guys are straight, but they cruise the bookstore for closeted guys. Dr. Ross asks if upper-class religious guys are usually the type that they look for to make their money. Oh, those guys are so easy to make money from, one of them tells her. The easiest ones are the suits. my children. Where to, Mama? Where to? Let's move to Boise. I always wanted Ooh. to go there. Boise, Cotton? Hmm? Why, that might not be a bad place. Let's sleep in gas station laboratories this time, Mama. Okay. Fuck permanent residences. It'll strengthen our filthiness. Oh, Crackers, that's a wonderful idea. Gas station laboratories. Mm -hmm. What do you say, Babs? Let's move to Boise. You are about to receive some migrants of a very special nature. Mm. A nature that defies description. You are about to receive into your community the filthiest people alive. Boise, Idaho, here we come. Stay tuned to hear me read some credits if you like. And in the meantime, you can visit QueerSerial.com or QueerSerial on Instagram for the complete series episode guide and lots of images and videos from the true history on this podcast. If you want bonus episodes featuring exclusive interviews with queer legends and spin-off stories from Queer Serial, you can now subscribe to get the full catalog of bonus episodes for $2.99 on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy. Just visit the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts. You can also get all of those bonus episodes, plus Queer History archive dives and exclusive behind-the-scenes peeks into production on my documentary by subscribing to my Patreon now through Spotify. It's super easy. Just open Spotify and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows, and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. That Spotify feed will also give you access to everything on my Patreon. Or if you just want the bonus episodes, you can save a whole penny and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. By the way, the documentary I mentioned is basically a sequel project to Queer Serial. It's created by me and Jim Morrow at Viridian Coast Studios, and it's all about archiving Randy Wicker's gay forest gump of a life. And it's about his extended gay family, including Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and so many more people whose names deserve to be written into our history. The Wicker Family documentary is very much a queer serial movie. You can help support my work archiving Randy and Marsha's materials with the LGBT Center Archives here in New York, an ongoing years-long process, 
and see behind the scenes of that project and its documentary at patreon.com slash queer serial. You can also support my work by shopping in my Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift, or just by subscribing to bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Patreon. Every little bit of support helps. Okay, thanks for listening. Here are the credits. Resources for this series include John Garrisey's 1965 book, The Boys of Boise, Seth Randall's 2006 documentary, The Fall of 55, and Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America by John D'Amelio and Estelle B. Friedman. Find more info at QueerSerial.com. To learn more about America's history of gay panics and their causes, listen to Queer Serial Season 1, Episode 4, The Lavender Scare. Music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song, It's Noisy Out in Boise, Idaho, is a 1949 song by the King's Jesters. Could that be more perfect for a Mattachine production? This show is entirely supported by subscribers on Patreon and by bonus episode subscribers on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just $2.99 a month. Thank you. Queer Serial is written, hosted, edited, produced, etc. by me, Devlin Camp. What a cool job. Bye. Oh, it's noisy out in Boise, Idaho. Oh, it's noisy out in Boise, Idaho.